0: Whether you look at the world ideologically, geopolitically, economically, it's becoming much messier, much more fluid, much more complex. I think that any sustainable foreign policy has to reflect that
1: complexity. I find B R I C S is often going around with a sort of a bigger stir of other buzzwords. We're in multipolar world, we're in new world order, end of hegemon, cold war, right? Will the
0: United States win this putative new cold war with China or will China win? And I think that the question is wrong. I think that the expansion of the B R I C S embodies this phenomena. More and more middle powers more and more developing countries are saying look we don't have to make a strategic choice between the united states or between china and so we can leverage that question for the united states its allies and partners is not how to achieve a decisive victory but instead how to maintain a
1: tense cohabitation that's maximally favorable this is the global gambit but this time it means the bricks. Yeah, your good old favorite favorite subject. Genuinely, everybody, I am considering doing a PhD in this subject because it's just PhD in bricks, brick <laughs> powers, strategic competition, world order, big stuff. And uh, and joining me to talk big stuff is uh, is the big man himself, uh, Ali Wayne. He is uh, someone we've had on uh, the conversation before on the Global Gambit. He's the senior analyst with Eurasia Group uh, and it's global macro slash geopolitical practice, but he focuses on U.S.-China relations and great power competition. So basically my favorite thing, and we're going to be talking about that, but largely in the context of bricks. Ali, it's lovely to have you back on. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be with you. Yeah, no, um, let's jump straight into it. So, why is BRICS so idealized, right? And to context my uh, contextualize my question for people, you know, whenever we listen to the BRICS, we hear people going, it's the end of the Western order, it's the end of the US hegemony, it is, you know, the BRICS will replace the United Nations, I've heard people say, which is obviously rather a far-fetched, Concept because they're two very different things. But clearly, if you don't study international relations or understand how they work intricately, you know you think that it's possible. Why is why are people so obsessed with the bricks?
0: So I, I agree with the characterization, and I think that you know the reason for you know speaking of it in these perhaps you know I, I think hyperbolic terms is it does it does capture a certain zeitgeist. I think the expansion of the BRICS, and we were just talking a little bit before joining the conversation, that it is significant that you had in the run up to the summit that just took place in Johannesburg. It's significant that you had something like 40 countries that either formally or informally expressed an interest in joining. So, so clearly we can say and I think that the expansion of the BRICS embodies this phenomena, more and more middle powers more and more developing countries are saying look, we don't have to make a strategic choice between the United States or between China um, and in fact we can flip the script the United States is trying to court us China is trying to court us, and so we can leverage that courtship to enhance our freedom of maneuver when it comes to foreign policy. So I, I think one reason is that one reason people are focusing a lot on the BRICS is that it seems to embody something of a zeitgeist in global geopolitics. Again, this desire for greater agency on the part of a growing swath of countries. But having having made that point, I now want to to kind of to, to shift focus a little bit, but to get to I, I think kind of the the undercurrent of of your premise with which I fully agree. Uh, there's a tendency to exaggerate. How transformative a given event will be. There's a tendency to exaggerate how dramatic a shift uh, a, a given development represents in the the evolution of, of geopolitics. And so, I think that it's important that while we don't diminish that zeitgeist that that BRICS plus embodies, I think you know, by the same token, it's important that we not aggrandize it. So, if you look at the founding five, so to speak, so the original BRICS: Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. South Africa joined in in late. 2010, and China was a forceful uh, proponent of South Africa's inclusion. Even if you just restrict your focus to the founding five, I mean, forget about the the six countries that have come on board. If mm-hmm. you just look at the founding five, even there, there were, there were very strong divisions. And I think particularly between India and China, and that rivalry is only intensifying, but it wasn't just the India-China rivalry. If you look at the founding five, you know, China and Russia wanted to make the BRICS, and they continue to want this expanded BRICS to be explicitly a countervailing coalition. They want to define the BRICS as explicitly anti-United States, anti-West. If you look at the other members of the founding five, so if you look at uh, India, if you look at South Africa, if you look at Brazil, they want to enhance their autonomy. They want to enhance their freedom of maneuver when it comes to foreign policy, but they don't want the BRICS to be explicitly anti-United States or anti-West. Now, if you look at the six countries that have joined, my argument would be that only one of those countries shares the view of China and Russia, shares the desire of those two countries to make it explicitly anti-United States and anti-West, namely Iran. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the other five countries that have joined, their foreign policy orientations, I would say, are much more similar to those of Brazil, India, South Africa. In in many ways, with this expanded grouping, it's arguably even less geopolitically cohesive cohesive, because now it embeds two key bilateral rivalries,
1: India versus China, which existed in the original grouping, but now also Saudi Arabia versus Iran. But the Saudi Arabian-Iranian dynamic uh, has been improved because of the very, you know, PRC. So do you not think that there is a propensity for countries? I agree. No, I agree with
0: you that it. I think that the dynamic has changed. And I think certainly, I mean, if I were, if I were China, I would chalk up this normalization deal, this, this tentative normalization deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran. I would uh, chalk it up as as a diplomatic victory um, if Mm -hmm. I were in China. Having said so, there's a lot of work to be done to translate a normalization deal that exists on paper into a genuine detente, into a genuine rapprochement. Um, Iran and Saudi Arabia have a very long history of distrust. They have a very long history of this open rivalry for preeminence uh, in, in the Middle East. And so I don't think that a normalization deal is going, I don't think that a normalization deal obviates, you know, that, that distrust. Uh, but even here, you know, it's interesting. If you look at the Saudi Arabia and Iran, we see a difference in how they think about uh, China, how they think about the United States. Again, Iran, I think that Iran is decisively tilting towards China. And I think that Iran feels like Russia feels that One of its best bets for uh, maintaining, keeping its economy afloat, overcoming diplomatic isolation, is to ride the coattails of the preeminent challengers of the United States. Mm -hmm. If you're Saudi Arabia, you look to the United States and China for very different reasons. So if you're Saudi Arabia, you don't look to China for security ties. You still value the security ties that you have with the United States. But... You look to China and you say, "Well, look, there's growing scope for enhancing energy ties. There's growing scope for enhancing overall economic ties." And so, even the way that Saudi Arabia and Iran approach the United States and China, you see a tension between their foreign policy approaches, not only regionally but globally.
1: Yeah. No. And and to build on that point is is this genuine I- I- idea of you know we, we could talk about sort of a regional. Cold War or a broader Cold War or multipolarity. And the reason I'm throwing in all these buzzwords is because that's sort of how I want to frame the uh, the other point with you, which is I find BRICS is often flung around with a sort of a bigger stir of other, as I say, buzzwords. We're in multipolar world. We're in New World Order. End of hegemon. um Cold War, right? I personally, maybe we can have this for a future conversation, I personally don't think we're in a new Cold War, because I think China's a very different actor to the Soviet Union, but, you know, I definitely already think we're in a version of multipolarity, and it's just becoming more cemented in the eyes of people around the world, in the eyes of policymakers. What's your opinion about those relations of BRICS, right? And and to, to land this question with this example, is China brought out a very controversial map, which redefine its borders, including Russia. But what has the Kremlin said? Absolutely nothing. They've been muted, and that's because Russia knows at this point they're in bed, or very much in, you know, in tandem with the Chinese. That's their best bet for prosperity. Survival, whatever. How did you see the map, and what do you think about the other buzzwords that I've mentioned in the context of the BRICS?
0: Sure. So a, a, a few, a few thoughts. Number one, I think it's important to recognize, and, and this point I think is going to become more and more important as we evaluate the behavior of, and, and even here, there's actually now sort of this burgeoning nomenclature. So non-aligned powers, multi-aligned yeah, exactly. powers, unaligned powers. So even there, in, in in trying to characterize how this growing swath of countries yeah. is is behaving. Even now, there's there's this whole broadening vocabulary. But I think that to your point, I think the two propositions can be true. I think the proposition one can be that you have a growing number of countries that want to escape the strictures of great power competition. A growing number of countries have certain apprehensions about Western influence. That's proposition one. Having said that, apprehensions about Western influence do not necessarily imply or necessarily translate into affinity for China's conception of its role in the world or for Chinese foreign policy. And there are many countries that simultaneously harbor concerns about Western influence, but also are concerned about the directions in which China is going, whether the way in which China is cracking down on civil society more and more uh, domestically, the human rights abuses that it's carrying out domestically, um, the way in which it's asserting itself uh, more and more uh, in in its near abroad. So I think that more and more countries are saying, look, we reject the notion of a G2 world. Um, we, we don't want to be taking our cues from any one other country. We want to be more pragmatic. And I think I was having a conversation just a, a few days ago with a colleague. And I said, I think a real exemplar in this regard is India. And, and I imagine we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about India. Um, will. India, I think has been very, it's been very shrewd in its diplomacy. Uh, mm-hmm. and I think that India in many ways, it's, it's pragmatic. It's, it's omnidirectional. Uh, and it's responsive to, uh, I think it's responding to, to shifts in geopolitics in a, in a creative way. So if you're India, India is strengthening its relationship with the United States, but it's not proceeding in lockstep with the United States. And so we see divisions between the United States and India when it comes to Russia. So even as India is strengthening its relationship with the United States, it has a residual relationship with Russia. India is strengthening its relationships in the Gulf, but it also has a residual relationship with Iran. And so I think that Indian diplomacy um, is very much an exemplar for how many other countries are thinking in the BRICS, in the original BRICS, but also in the expanded grouping. Number one, um, you know, number two, to this point about sort of the polarity of the international system, I think it's fair to argue that the international system in the aggregate is becoming more multipolar but i think that it's important to distinguish there's a i think that we we lose a little bit of nuance when we talk about the international order or the world order there are in fact constituent orders and so you can think about kind of a security or military order you can think about an economic order you can think about a technological order. And, and here I'm, I'm basically adapting a framework that the, the founder and the president of Eurasia Group has promulgated, Ian Bremmer. So in his recent TED Talk, he advocates for sort of parsing out and taking this kind of nebulous notion of the international order and breaking it down into constituent orders. And I think that one of the virtues of breaking it down in that way is that you see that multipolarity is more advanced in certain domains than in other domains. I think that in the global security domain, you know, China is nowhere near approaching the United States as the principal player when it comes to global security. In the economic domain,
1: it's more multipolar. But even here, now there are questions about. You look at some of the growth headwinds in China. Functionality of China's economy, the youth employment, um, the demographic crisis. You know, this year China has been overtaken mm-hmm. by India almost the same week that we saw them right. as first. You know, long-term demographic decline by white. Nine hundred thousand people. These are not, you know, the economic headwinds facing the Chinese economy. You know, single figure growth for yet another year, less than five percent. You know, I've seen a lot of uh, major forecasters predicting for this year. You know, that's not what you want for a country that's supposed to be the workhouse uh, of the of the of the globe of the global economy. So no, one hundred percent, and that's not. what yeah understanding the troubles and challenges that the West faces, but
0: just to build, just to build on this point, the one that you just made, this is also one of the reasons why I'm. I think that there are many lessons to. I, when I say we, uh, I think we in the West. I think that there are many lessons that we can and should learn from the Cold War. I'm wary of a overlearning lessons from the Cold War because I think the geopolitical dynamics and geoeconomic dynamics are very different today than they were during the Cold War. But two of also learning the wrong lessons. Um, and when I think about the United States and China, you know, my sense is that, you know, a lot of observers tend to look at the relationship through sort of the broad framework of power transition theory. So there's a lot of discussion of who will win? Will the United States win this putative new Cold War with China or will China win? And I think that the question is wrong because implicit in the question is that there will be as it was during the, the first Cold War. So we can look back on the first Cold War and we can say the United States won and the Soviet Union lost. You can't theoretically rule out the possibility that China collapses in Soviet style fashion. You cannot theoretically rule out the possibility of a hot war that China loses so badly that China is permanently defeated. But I think that those are very low outcome scenarios. My, my, my guess is that a power transition is less likely than a tense fluid coexistence. Um, a tense fluid coexistence in which China's competitive strengths are sufficient enough that it won't be excised from the international system, but its competitive liabilities are sufficiently great in number and severity that China won't be able to replace the United States as the world's preeminent power. Now, if you accept that hypothesis, I'm just speculating here, but if you accept the hypothesis that the U.S.-China rivalry is not going to culminate in a decisive resolution. Mm -hmm. And the question for the United States, its allies and partners, is not how to achieve a decisive victory, which, again, is kind of illusory in this context, but instead, how to maintain a tense cohabitation that's maximally favorable to the United States' interests and values. And that latter undertaking is more complicated. And I would argue that, there may not even be a precedent historically for that undertaking, but I think that it's an undertaking that will that should allow the United States to be more creative in its diplomacy. And it should also give us a little bit of breathing room that, look, this rivalry, it's not as though we only have a narrow time horizon in which to settle this rivalry decisively. I think we have a longer time horizon to think creatively and energetically with our diplomacy.
1: No, 100%. And on the, uh, you know, we've touched upon China and there are a couple of countries I want to use as, you know, brief case studies in our, in our conversation. One of which is India, but on the foreign policy standpoint, on on its you know place in the world. I mean, I agree with Ian's uh, perspective about you know you need to put things into different themes buckets. I you know that's how we distinguish between different types of powers, right? You know, it's all well and good to say that uh, the, you know the U.S. is a hyperpower, whilst the other great powers or superpowers, right? But you know, in what context are we talking about? And so it's applicable to the power um, scenarios as well. Uh, but for India, you know, I think they've done a remarkable job with their. Uh, strategical autonomy over the past 70, 80 years. And they're never, cons- um, at least for me, incorporated enough into great power competition or great power opportunity to, to mm-hmm. quote your book uh, from last year, which will be in the description for everyone interested. And I, and I don't understand why. India, I, I really don't think, you know, they are one of the core components of the BRICS. They very much want to remain on good terms with the US, not because they feel they have to, but because it benefits them. It's a very pragmatic. It's a very transactional um, approach to things. Why is India not taken more seriously in this regard? And and, and do you think that they could be one of the core leaders in the, in the BRICS in a sort of, you know, if you've got two camps, China, Russia, Iran, and then the India, India and more non-aligned entities, you know, would you see that being the case?
0: I've always been struck, and, and I, I agree with your premise, I've always been struck by the degree to which it's underappreciated in these conversations. To, to make this point, historically, compare India and Russia. So some observers will say, Russia is a great power because it has the world's largest nuclear arsenal. Okay, but India is a nuclear armed power as well. Mm-hmm. Um, India has a larger population. India has a larger economy. So I'm, I'm, right now I'm just comparing India and Russia. Oh, sure. Um, But I think that if you even look further beyond, it's far more diplomatically engaged than Russia is. It's far more diplomatically agile than Russia is. And I think that if you look at... You know, going further out, I think that you know many of the trend lines for India are very favorable. If you look at its ratio, it has a very vibrant uh, working age population. It, India is making very significant investments in critical and emerging technology. So India this year, next year is projected to grow faster than China. Now, I'm not saying that India doesn't have its challenges. You know, India's economy right now is five times smaller than China's. You know, India faces a number of internal challenges, and I think that Indian officials would be the first to you know to to identify those challenges. But it does strike me, and and one other sort of telling indication of this kind of disconnect between India's self-evidently growing importance and the residual extent to which it tends to get discounted in these conversations. Look at the growing number of countries that have published Indo-Pacific strategies. Well, you don't publish an Indo-Pacific strategy that doesn't, you know, that's not centered on India. It's not just the United States that has an Indo-Pacific strategy. You have more and more of America's core allies and partners in, in Europe, in the Indo-Pacific have Indo-Pacific strategies. It's an acknowledgement that India is becoming more consequential. So if you look, uh, and I'll just, I'll, I'll make just one last point in its diplomacy. I don't think that India is going to cede its place in the BRICS. I think, you know, India senses that, look, if, if we're a member of a given grouping, you know, let's, let's leverage that membership for what we can get out of it. But I don't think that India is going to uh, allocate going forward. I think that relatively India is probably going to allocate less energy to the BRICS than it does to alternative groupings. So what are some of those groupings? I think that India is going to invest more and more energy in revitalizing the quadrilateral security dialogue, better known as the quad. I think that India has been um, really significantly expanding its diplomatic efforts across the Gulf. And with, I think particularly, I'm thinking of the I2U2 forum. So this is uh, Israel, India, the United States, and the United Arab Emirates. They call it the other quad, don't they? I think they call it exactly. Quartz, that's the That's right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that India, again, look. It's a member of the BRICS, but they're diminishing, probably are going to be diminishing diplomatic returns, from I think from India's perspective, to spending a lot of time in the BRICS. Um, so if I, I think that India, again, it's spending more time in the Quad, it's spending more time in the I2U2. It's, I think, moving in, I think, ways that are perhaps underappreciated. It's also moving, I think, quite strongly to strengthen its overall ties with, uh, with the European Union. Um, so India is, but having said all of that, Uh, Just circling back to some comments I made at the outset of our conversation, I think that this is very important. You know, when we look at the relationship between the United States and India, it is it is strengthening on a multifaceted basis. And I think that that strengthening will continue on a bipartisan basis. Uh, But there will be differences between uh, the two countries. And I think it's important. You know, India is not You know, India. Yes, it's diversifying away from Russian energy. It's diversifying away from Russian arms but that diversification doesn't play, take place overnight that diversification away from russia will take a long time india has a relationship with iran and that relationship is not going to to disappear and even outside the realm of just kind of interstate you know geopolitics there are tensions between the united states and india on on certain transnational challenges uh climate change i think is is one you know, i think that you know the united states you know, the united states would like you know india and other uh, you know other countries uh, in the developing world to accelerate their their green energy you know transitions, and I think that India certainly is moving in that direction. But I think that India is saying, "Look, we are we have a very high rate of poverty. We have a huge middle class that we have to lift up." And so, yes, we are we are going green as fast as we can. But it would certainly help if the West were to put forward more financing for climate adaptation. So I think you see tensions on on climate change. If you look at India's diplomacy, it's it's agile it's pragmatic, it's omnidirectional. Um, and I think that more and more middle powers in developing countries are going to try and adopt that diplomatic style so that they can maximize their agency, um, as great power competition intensifies.
1: No, hundred percent. I think India is, um, this sort of model. Uh, it was one of the founding members of the non-aligned movement as I, as we know, and it, it, it's, uh, you know, as i say it's been highly effective i mean the us and india do have a lot of overlapping interests you know technological evolution um, co- commercial trade links um you know there are some cultural you know overlaps there the, the democracy front values even if the democracy models are slightly different you know if you really want to get into the intricate details um versus you know as i said before uh, in the past i think maybe even with you to friends of my of my own you know india is being pushed away by China, not pulled by the U.S. Mm. Because India doesn't need to be pulled yeah, by the
0: yeah. U.S. <laughs> i just to make one...
1: Go Ali, go for it.
0: point that you just made is, is incredibly important and it's underappreciated. Now, I don't want to understate, going to our earlier parts of our conversation, I don't want to understate the degree of geopolitical overlap between the United States and India. There is significant and growing geopolitical Absolutely. overlap. But I think it's very important to note What's transpired the past three years is so first with the coronavirus pandemic, then the border skirmishes, but yeah. just I think it's sort of a broad and then of course you know Russia's invasion of Ukraine. What we're seeing in, nope. in Delhi is it's less about responding to US exhortations than it is about recalibrating independently of its own volition in response to how China is is conducting itself. But I want to make I want to emphasize as well the border dispute between China and India rightly gets a lot of attention. Uh, but the border dispute is part of a much broader rivalry between the two so china and india are competing not just over their the, the line of actual control they're competing over which country is seen as the true champion of the developing world they are competing over which country in the indo-pacific plays a greater role in determining global technology standards they yeah. are playing uh, so they're competing and of course yeah you know, they are competing in the security domain but i just i want to make clear two points one that what, what we've seen in the past three years is that India is aligning itself more with the United States less because of what the United States is saying and more because of what China is doing and more because of India's own recalibration, number one. And number two, while the map that China's published is rightly getting a lot of attention, the border dispute is only one component of a much broader and expanding rivalry between India and China.
1: No, absolutely. And that brings me to the second to last question, actually, which is about this idea of, you know, transactionality used as a basis in these bodies, in these multilateral international bodies versus a values-based system. So for context, you know, People in the West, you know, we, we've largely been driven by, you know, democracy, a rules-based order, economic liberalisation, these sorts of things, right? But then on the other side, there are countries that we still engage with, even though they're not democracies. You can check out the video above now for an illustration of that, about, you know, democracy versus non-democratic orders. And so, Ali, simple question to you and quick fire um, from you is, you know, are we going to see a, a, a sort of shift away from values-based alliances like this and more just based purely on transsexuality, or do you think that the western style is going to remain prominent within the west and 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 we're not going to set out to sort of being just more transactional that i think sense.
0: they're going to coexist and i know that that answer sounds evasive and it may well be evasive but I, I think we are going to see elements of both so if you look at for example and we were talking you know just before hopping on the call uh, if you look at the g7 Uh, The G7 is is quite cohesive in part because of shared ideological alignment. There's a reason why you have a you have seven advanced industrial democracies that are increasingly aligned geopolitically, but there is an underlying a a, a significant underlying ideological component that glues them together. And it's an ideological it's an ideological component that is not nearly as pronounced in this expanded BRICS grouping. Is not nearly as pronounced in the G20. So I, I think. And, and we will see that whether it's with, from a U.S. perspective, whether it's deepening its investment in the G7, deepening its investment in the Quad, I think that the United States is going to continue. I think the United States is most comfortable when it is dealing with other democracies. And I think that the United States is going to strengthen its investments in the G7 and the Quad at the same time there's a recognition i think a growing recognition that in order to push back on further russian aggression in order to you know contest china in a durable way you know you need as many hands on deck as possible and so if you restrict yourself uh, in terms of coalition building efforts if you restrict yourself to countries That cross every, you know, T and dot every I in terms of ideological alignment, you're going to restrict quite significantly the scope of your potential coalition. And so what we will see, I think more and more of is efforts to, in parallel, double down on the G7, double down on the quad, but in parallel, expand relationships with countries that we might find somewhat problematic ideologically because there's a recognition that without, say, the Vietnam's of the world, without The Philippines of the world without, you know, the Indonesias of the world. I mean, there are going to be countries, again, that you might not align with purely ideologically, but you recognize that not having them on board strategically will be to your detriment. So I think that those efforts will proceed in in parallel. I'll just make one last point, which is whether you look at the world ideologically, geopolitically, economically it's becoming much messier, much more fluid, much more complex. And I think that any sustainable foreign policy has to reflect that complexity. And again, the vast majority of countries in the world, many of them right now, they were already economically stressed and credit stressed prior to COVID-19. They've now been further battered because of the pandemic, because of destabilizations to food and energy markets. They're going to be thinking in much more pragmatic terms. So they say, look, I need to lift up my middle class. I need infrastructure. I need digital connectivity, and they're not going to pay too much heed to the ideological orientation of the country that provides them with assistance in that regard. And so, uh, as that competition plays out for uh, to sort of to curry favor with countries in the developing world, uh, I think that we'll need to be mindful that leaning too much into ideology is probably not going to win favor with those countries that are thinking much more pragmatically about how to get themselves out of their developmental uh, challenges.
1: So uh, that leads smoothly, Ali, into the last question I have for you, which is expansionism again. But specifically, we're talking about uh, transactionality. And one of the things that we've seen with transactionality is China's you know, use of BRI. It's very impressive. And one of the countries that I said I want to use as a case study is Argentina. Now, China has, you know, bailed Argentina out, I think, quite a few times. The swap lines are amounting to about $230 billion in total. Uh, and Argentina has had to do this like eight times in eight years, you know, do these, these these things and it's just basically this Transactionality that is uh, an interesting part about the BRICS. But, you know, Argentina is considering dollarizing because of their economy at 115% inflation. Um, and yet they're, you know, they've just joined the BRICS as the expanded BRICS 11. What is going on with that? Can you, you know, you don't have to use Argentina as, as an example in your response, but just, you know, why why this confusion around expansionism and, and then sort of different choices being made despite the, if, if my question makes sense? Very poorly <laughs> put.
0: It does. And <laughs> so I'll just, I'll just make two points. You know, I think that what Argentina, you know, Argentina's, you know, conduct, again, it's emblematic of this kind of this balancing act that many members of the BRICS are engaging in. So Argentina, sure, in certain ways, China is courting Argentina, but Argentina um, is not going to abandon its relationship with the United States. So point one would just be what Argentina is doing. It's emblematic of this balancing act. Number two, just on kind of a geo-economic point. Um, there's no question that the BRICS member countries will experiment more with trading with one another in in local currencies, non-dollar currencies. But the reality is that now over the, the medium term to long term, we may begin to see some gradual erosion or some gradual diminution in the centrality of the dollar in global finance. But a lot of obituaries that have been written for the dollar have been have proven premature. Uh, in times of crisis, many countries tend to gravitate towards the dollar. If you look at, you know, the Chinese currency, so long as China's economy is configured the way that it is, it's going to be very difficult for China's currency to become a credible global reserve currency alternative to the dollar. And so, we shouldn't get too carried away with predictions of de-dollarization. To the extent that de-dollarization occurs, it's going to be
1: very piecemeal, very incremental. And, very gradual. and this whole idea of a common currency, I think we should always draw a distinction between, you know, wanting to do more bilateral trade through, you know, your local currencies versus wanting to create an entirely new global currency with which the Renimbi is nowhere near ready. And equally, what would they have to do? They'd have to take some inspiration from the eurozone in creating that new currency amongst this block how on earth are you going to do that over the geographical proximity it's not europe it's brazil and argentina and then russia on the other side of the globe so it's not just physically speaking that easy to do but ali it's been a pleasure uh thank you so much for joining us Uh, we'll be sure to have you back again Uh, if you enjoyed this conversation everyone leave it a like leave it a uh you know subscribe leave a comment if you disagreed with me or ali i'm sure some of you will probably me ali speaks far too much and i will see you all in a future episode Take care, everyone.